Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Betsy Gaines-Quaman, who is the author of the book True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. I am really happy to be here. Hi, Cam and Andy. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in your area of research? Yeah, it's this is really a companion piece to the first book I wrote, which is called American Zion. And that was about the Bundy family. They are Latter-day Saints in Southern Nevada. And they have been a really important inspiration for the militia movement in the United States and the Patriot movement. And that's what I did my dissertation on is how religious beliefs influence, and in particularly in the West, and the the Sagebrush Rebellion, which I can kind of explain as well, which is a, a Western fight over public lands. But I looked at the Bundy family who were motivated through their faith. They were involved in two major events. One was in 2014, and it was an armed standoff when the government was attempting to confiscate cows that they had illegally grazing on public lands, which in the United States, that's that's lands that are federal and they're essentially owned by all Americans or, or they're, they're for all Americans. And then they were involved in a takeover, armed takeover of a wildlife refuge in Oregon in 2016. And so my dissertation and then my first book was on why they were doing this and their anti-government sentiment as well as their religious motivations. And at the time, I really felt like they were outliers. And it turned out that in the midst of pandemic and political polarization in the United States, they really were not outliers. And in fact, one central figure in the Bundy family, Ammon Bundy, pivoted with his focus on public lands and really made medical freedom his big platform, meaning, you know, you can't tell us to wear masks. You can't tell us to shut down our businesses or, or gather for worship or get vaccinated. And so this became one of his rallying points that really built on the work that I'd done for my dissertation in my first book. And so True West was looking at how pandemic and polarization 
impacted the United States and in particular the Western United States. Betsy, what's the significance of American Zion and how does that relate to, I guess, the true West? Yeah, that's a good question. And, it, and it's, it's interesting. It, it, true West is a companion piece. And American Zion is the idea that when the Latter-day Saints in, the, in America came to be it, through Joseph Smith, who was their prophet, they were promised the idea of Zion. And again, that's being borrowed from the Middle East and, and biblical uh, Old Testament concepts. But they had this idea that this was promised land, this idea of Zion being promised land by God. And so when early church figures like Brigham Young took the Mormon people from, in this case, this was right after Joseph Smith had been murdered. He took them to the Great Basin and the Colorado Plateau. So, so Utah, Nevada, Idaho, actually they, the, the Mormon geography really spread out through the Western United States from Mexico to Oregon. And, and they had this idea that this was promised land. And the argument I make in my book is that that's one of the motivations for the Bundy family and for some of those involved in anti-government militia maneuvering in the Western United States. The Bundys practice something called confrontational politics. They're not alone in that. Could you tell us a little bit about this concept and some of the groups that employ it? It's been a really very dangerous and disruptive practice, this idea of confrontational politics. It was based on a book written by a state senator in California. And it's basically like, how can you be so disruptive in, in public meetings that you actually intimidate people? So if you have things like school boards or city councils or any sort of volunteer organizations, library boards, for example, and you have somebody get in there and they're so disruptive, they dox people, they, they make public addresses and phone numbers and personal information, names of children, ages of children, places their children go to school. And it's this incredible int intimidation tactic so that people are less inclined to want to be a part of this volunteer structure, whatever it is. And in the case of Ammon Bundy, and this is a, a, a long story arc, but again, he comes from this family. They're anti-government agitators. They're, they're religiously motivated. He's at first focused on public lands. He gets very involved in medical freedom. And when I last talked to him at the beginning of pandemic in March of 2020, I had asked him, you know, thinking this is going to be where he really focuses this idea of liberties being taken away because of COVID protocols. And at the time, I was seeing this kind of intersect between the militia and the patriots. And I was beginning to see the creep of QAnon, which I'm sure you, you all are familiar with. But he really assured me that QAnon was not something that, that he embraced at that time. But through over the course of the next couple of years, he 
focused on St. Luke's Hospital, which is a hospital in Idaho, and accused them of child trafficking. And really, again, it was very easy to see how he had been wrapped up in QAnon two years after I talked to him using confrontational politics, intimidating hospital staff, and they really had to, I mean, emergency cases that were trying to get into the emergency room, they sent ambulances to other hospitals because protesters were right at the emergency room exits and entrances. So this confrontational politics not only impacted these volunteer organizations and, 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 you know, also levels of, of government. And when you had city councils and county commissions, but, but they were also uh, impacting hospitals and medical facilities. So it, it was a, it was a effective and pretty terrifying technique. Betsy, when you say effective, I wonder what is the goal of this disruption? Because I assume it's not in order to prevent emergency care, even though that seems to be what's happening. Does this, what does this disruption lead to? Is this part of creating a, a social movement, gaining political power? What's going on? Yeah, I think there are a couple of answers to that question because um, it really depends on where these confrontational politics or these, these techniques or strategies are, are practiced. In places like school boards or our library boards, there is a minority of people who have very adamant beliefs. They want to ban books. They, they want to ban education in critical race theory, which that's a big subject, but essentially it means the way that we have educated our kids is very much whitewashed. We have not presented our history in ways that really reflect how we've treated African Americans, how we've treated indigenous people. It, it's, it, and yet these people are adamant about teaching in a way that is reaffirms this idea of America being a place of great freedom and everybody has the same opportunities without really looking at how marginalized communities really have historically been at a disadvantage and continue to be at a disadvantage. So, so these people are disruptive because they have this idea and it, it's a racist idea. You know, we don't want to change the way kids learn about American history. So, so these techniques are in, in that realm in order to reaffirm or reinforce the ways that, that we have historical taught kids. They want to ban books that, that bring up ideas that are counter to, to the ways they see things in, in pretty much the same way. In terms of the hospital, I think what happened there is that Ammon Bundy felt like he could intimidate hospital staff because one of his friends, grandkids, <laughs> was taken into child protective services because they were malnourished. And I think this, this was a campaign that he saw being able to, to motivate 
a group of people who were tied into this QAnon idea. And so in his case, I think it was a way to really empower himself, to make himself look like he was a protector of the people, a protector of children. So I guess I would answer your question by saying this confrontational style is being is being used in different arenas for different purposes, but it still comes down to intimidating people so that they're less likely to either fulfill volunteer roles or be a part of the medical community or be teachers in schools. It's, it's really, it's effective, as I say, in a really terrifying way. Betsy, another practitioner of confrontational politics that you examine in the book is Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers, who's currently sitting in prison after his role in January 6. I was surprised to read that at the beginning of the pandemic and, you know, during the Black Lives Matters protests in the States, he initially was in favour of, you know, taking COVID precautions and was on the side of BLM and then sort of quickly flipped. Could you talk a little bit about what happened there and what does this guy actually believe? You know, that's a really good question. And it, and it actually makes me think about Ammon too, who at the beginning didn't embrace QAnon. And I feel like both those guys were trying to adapt based on what their followers believed. And so I think Ammon realized that embracing some of these QAnon ideas would make him more of a powerful figure. And I think that with Stuart Rhodes, knowing that they were anti-maskers and that they did not like Black Lives Matter would make the Oath Keepers more powerful and position them and, you know, in terms of, of a powerful force in, in fighting the government. And so, yeah, these were this was a story that Tasha Adams shared with me. That's Stuart Rhodes' ex-wife. And she's since left the movement. And she said he'd ordered masks at the beginning of COVID. And he also wanted to go, I believe, to Ferguson and march with African-American sheriffs in solidarity. And then when his supporters said that wasn't where they wanted to be positioned. He all of a sudden was on the tops of buildings with other guys and rifles, you know, protecting businesses from quote unquote being looted. And I don't mean to be cavalier about that. I, I do think there was looting. I mean, we saw what was happening, but the fact that the militia movement focused on that, the looting was such a small problem that was overblown by the press, but it was something that many militia members in small communities and in larger communities focused on in order to kind of give themselves a role in, in maintaining the peace. And it was really a, a big part of why militia became such a, a, a it, the ranks were swelled during during polarization politically Donald Trump in office during pandemic and during this social justice movement but see the true west concerns itself with myth and its i guess political function but 
Could you elaborate on how you employ the term myth and what it means for the people that you spoke to and how it informs understanding, especially American understandings, of this thing called the West? Yeah, I I think that what I was trying to do is look at how Western myths are foundational to what Americans believe about themselves. And even if they're aware of it or not, it's something that they have grown up with, whether it's through the education systems that I've talked about or Hollywood. This place that I live in, I, I'm in Montana. It was one of the last places to be settled by Europeans. And so it was a place of promise. It was a place of quote unquote empty land. And again, we know that isn't true. This was uh, indigenous land. It was stolen land, but it was a place that allowed people to share an American promise, this mythology of the American dream. And so it, it has been, it's loomed large in the imagination of Americans, the cowboy myth, this rugged individualism, this blank slate, you know, go out and create a life in the West. And, and also the myth of wilderness and this idea that there's there's a place in this country, a proving ground that, that's as wild and free as any American imagines themselves to be. And we know that that wilderness, that there's no such thing in this country as untrammeled. These were places that indigenous people, they lived here, they they practiced traditional harvest of, of uh, wild plants and they hunted, they had ceremonial uses, but still these myths were very much embraced by Americans in part because of a famous historian who said that in order to be, this is Frederick Jackson Turner, in order to really be an American and cast off European affectation, you need to go to the West. That's where a real American is forged. And so that's why I wanted to look at the West and Western myths and and look at how they were being impacted and impacting the moment we were in history during, as I said, pandemic and polarization. And I also wanted to look at how these myths we do live among. And as a myth-making species, we're always going to have myths, but we really need to confront them and unpack them and understand them so that they don't become toxic. Uh, one of the other myths you look at in the book is the myth that west of the, I think, the 100th meridian was sustainable for a whole bunch of people to move in and start farming. There were people at the time who said, hang on, there might not be enough rain here. I wonder if that sort of anti-science frontier idea set the tone for the next few hundred years. I really believe that that, again, is part of this American belief that they can do anything and they can bend the land to their will. I mean, I think that that we saw that during the Dust Bowl too, the sod busters going out and turning the prairie into an agrarian dream and it became a nightmare. And so you have this idea that was being promoted during uh, settlement that it, this, it, white settlement in the mid to late 1800s that rain follows the plow when 
these were land speculators who were selling a lie in order to make money. And so you had so many failed homesteads and farms and ranches because rain didn't follow the plow and rain still doesn't. I mean, we here in the Western United States are on the forefront of climate change in our country. You know, we're, we're experiencing wide drought, lots of fires, increasing temperatures, disappearing water, and, and yet people still want to move here. But see, in what way does myth and these kinds of stories, how do they manifest in things like struggles over the Dakota Access Pipeline? Because that was seemed to mobilise large numbers of people in order to prevent this pipeline from going ahead. And obviously, the leading role was taken by Indigenous peoples. How, how do you think these sorts of stories play out in this situation? Well, I that is a really interesting example of how when the Bundys had the Battle of Bunkerville, which was their standoff in Nevada, and about 800, anywhere between 800 and 1,000 armed militia movement people, or excuse me, militia showed up, and the government backed down. And then you had this huge... A wonderful, peaceful protest over the the pipeline, and it was an indigenous-led protest. And they were being hit by water cannons. They had dogs out there. They 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 were awful to the people who were protesting over water. And and the Bundys were protesting over cows that had been illegally trespassing for over twenty years. And it really shows the differences in the way law enforcement and and government, both state and federal government, handled it based on one group being white people and one group being indigenous people. And I I feel like that was a, a very shameful expression of of who we are as a country. And I I think that you are seeing other examples of indigenous campaigns to protect sacred sites from other exploitation, such as right now the, the Oak Flat in Apache land. They are determining whether they're going to open a big copper mine there. And you do see indigenous people already saying, you know, this is going to be the next standing rock. So it, it's really interesting that the other piece of Standing Rock was that it wasn't just indigenous. There were, there were a lot of different groups that came together. I, I hope that answered your question. I, I, it's, it's, it, I, I see this as something that could potentially happen again. And I do think that there are a lot of people who are becoming ever more aware of not only the, dangers of ongoing extraction in these lands that are going to be ever more important to keep intact during climate change, but to understand that these lands are also sacred lands and they are lands that are traditionally indigenous. Betsy, could you tell us a little bit about projects like the American Redoubt? For our listeners who might not be aware of what that is. Sure. The American Redoubt is a campaign that was launched by John Wesley Rawls. And it was an effort to have like-minded people move to the West. So he would argue that it wasn't 
white Christian nationalists, but it really has been white Christian nationalists that have heeded his call. And what he wanted to do was create like-minded, incredibly conservative communities in in areas such as the Idaho Panhandle and eastern and eastern Washington and eastern Oregon, western Montana, Colorado, so that people would move from different parts of the country, come to these communities, and essentially take over levels of government and live in a very strict religious nationalistic culture to await either the second coming or a civil war. And so that's something that's really put pressure on Western communities and has caused both real cultural shifts, but also caused really adamant campaigns to get the American redoubt people out of communities. I was wondering if we could talk about that a little. There's some parallels in Australia at the moment. There are some far-right groups who are contemplating similar projects. I guess, firstly, what has been what have been some of the successful ways that communities have dealt with the influx of these people? I have a story that I think is, and it's really reflective of where we are right now. There is a tiny little town in the Idaho panhandle called Bonner's Ferry, and they had a school board election. And Most of the population didn't really think it was that important. A lot of people didn't vote. And this is one of the most conservative communities in one of the most conservative states in the country. And what happened was two extremists were elected and they appointed a school superintendent and superintendent that was also extremist who wanted to defund the schools and essentially whittle down the education programs that they had in this tiny little community. Well, the community rallied, this conservative community rallied, and they had a recount. And these extremists had won by maybe like five or six votes. And so this community decided that even though they were conservative, they did not want extremists. And and by that, I mean, Christian nationalists who are in direct relationship and uh, allied with neo-Nazis in Idaho Panhandle, which has a history of neo-Nazi sort of culture. And, but they did not want that in their community. And they were successfully able to, to get these folks out of there and fire the superintendent. During the next election, again, people kind of thought, oh, good, we, we won. And they didn't vote. And these extremists ended up again, landing on the school board. So I think that communities are waking up to what's happening, but they have to be incredibly vigilant. And there were election results during the last election that indicated that communities really were fighting back against it. And Idaho, I think, is at the forefront of this battle we see it in America with, you know, Trumpism and the Republican Party. People in Idaho really want to fend off extremists and they are working on a community level way more successfully, I think, right now than the Republican Party is doing with Donald Trump. Uh, Betsy, I guess in talking about these groups and individuals, 
there's a sense in which they're in some ways exceptional or extreme and yet it seems also that the kinds of myths that are employed to mobilise are very much part of the US political mainstream. And I'm wondering what you think about the ways in which these myths are deployed on a national scale on the one hand and how they actually reflect or distort the actual lives and histories of people living in the West of America. Like Ronald Reagan, embrace the cowboy, that kind sure. of thing? Sure, and I guess from Reagan, how, how Reagan may have employed these sorts of symbols and, and myths and how they manifest now because it seems like in tracing the history of those involved in, say, the January 6th insurrection, people who might otherwise have been understood as being marginal or having quite bizarre beliefs are actually in some sense at the centre of US politics or, or at least were for a period. And on the other hand, the Republican Party, you've noted that there's elements within it that are fighting against extremism within the party and yet the party itself seems to have been largely colonised by the Trumpist movement. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I do see progress being made on local and regional levels, I don't see strides being made at all nationally, and and I it's it's a great concern. I think that there are, and and this is a, an interesting idea. I I'm I'm trying to sort of work my way into it. I think Stuart Rhodes really considered himself. A, a sort of hero. I, I think he embraced cowboy mythology. I think Ronald Reagan has raised, uh, embraced cowboy mythology. This idea of going into a situation and being a hero and the fact that many Republicans see January 6th as a heroic moment. I, I, I think that that does come from the idea of Americans thinking of themselves as heroes and thinking of themselves as valiant. And, and then some of it also, and this kind of goes back to, to the Bundys and, and mythologies that they embrace. They have an idea that the Mormon people will be the ones who protect the constitution while it's hanging by a thread. And Stuart Rhodes did convert to Mormonism. And that was something that I think he, he took with him when he went to the Capitol. But what we were seeing in, in addition to these kind of mythological beliefs of heroism or, or, or cowboy, you know, valiant action, we were also seeing this incredible phenomenon of, in the day of the internet, of these networks that have not traditionally been in relationship with each other, becoming in relationship with each other. So I attended something called the Red Pill Expo, which was a gathering of conspiracy theorists from every corner you can imagine. So it was... Stuart Rhodes in advance of the election in October of 2020, talking about how Trump, if he didn't win, the election was already stolen. So you had the election deniers already 
in place. Next to them, they were in conversation with people who did not, they, they believe that, you know, Bill Gates was, was putting vaccines in people, which were um, sending microchips into people's bloodstreams. There were people who uh, believed that individuals walking among us were actually reptile people. There were people who I'm trying, like at lunch, they showed the movie that said on the program, the Titanic never (laughs) sank. So you had all these people in the same room together and Stuart Rhodes is up on stage as well as Richard Mack, who is what is called a constitutional sheriff that believes that sheriffs in the United States, it's a, it's a county position that is elected they are the highest law in the land. And so there are a lot of these sheriffs and communities all across the country who believe that they have more authority than the federal government. So these people were all together in advance of the election. And he, Stuart Rhodes and other individuals were saying, you know, you've got to take a stand if Donald Trump doesn't win. You've got to be part of the solution. So all these people were were motivated by conspiracy theories, but were also motivated by this myth of being a hero. And I, I think that's what created this movement, as well as this sort of novel situation where these people were in relationship with each other. But I think that the real reason why January 6th was, was as big as it was, is because you had so many different disgruntled groups that were completely coming together over shared conspiracy theories. Sure, sure. A unifying myth of some sort, perhaps? I'm trying to think of what the, yes, the unifying myth was that they really were told by Donald Trump that they were doing their patriotic duty they were not doing a patriotic duty. They had they had fooled themselves into thinking they were patriots because Donald Trump was telling them that the election had been stolen. So it was misinformation that touched on the myth of the patriot. I guess the other, my final question would be, you do examine particular myths that are having uh, destructive effects, but you're also concerned with mending about rebuilding community and relationships that function on a kind of more sustainable and healthy basis. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about that and what your, both in terms of the broader material, but your own experience in talking to all different sorts of people and trying to d- understand where they're coming from and what might be a basis for some kind of healthier form of social relations. Yeah, I went out. I, this was not an academic book. I, n- neither one of my books that I've written have been, and they've been intentionally non-academic um, because I really wanted to go out and go into communities and have the opportunity to, to interview people and just have conversations. So I have been really lucky to be able to go into a lot of very small communities and, and have conversations with people just over coffee and be able to really talk to them about how they feel, how their neighbors feel, how, how much they care about their neighbors, even neighbors that have very different political ideologies. And 
I think it's really important to remember that there are real bad guys. There are real white Christian nationalists. There are real fascists. There, there are real sort of people who are wanting to disrupt democracy. And, and I think we see that with the confrontational politics. I mean, that's very anti-democratic as to go into a meeting where volunteers are, are operating in, in good faith to, to, you know, even elected officials, they're, they're operating in, in good faith and people go in and disrupt them and intimidate them so that they quit. And, and I, I wanted to talk to people about how they are fighting that in their community. But I also wanted to talk to people about anger that was in some cases manufactured that we during COVID got so angry at each other because we weren't talking to each other and that these otherwise functioning institutions or, or even opportunities to get together, book clubs or, or sports events, or I don't even know, like card games or whatever we did while, while before, before pandemic and we weren't doing, and we were getting versions of each other over social media and people were getting ever more angry and ever more afraid. I really wanted to go out and be able to engage in conversation and, and get a sense of how siloed people were and how they'd become and, and how we can start to think about getting back in conversation with each other. And, and it does seem when I say it, I think, Oh, that's, that's so simplistic, but it actually is working and it, and it needs to be something that communities think about and, and, and are vigilant about and, and sort of get around these, these knee jerk, sort of assumptions about one another. Again, I want to reiterate that there are bad guys, but those bad guys really succeed when people are not in conversation with each other. I had one man in very rural Montana who told me I would have been afraid of you if I hadn't met you. And to me, I think that really gets to the core of the matter. Well, Betsy, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to check out the book, it is called True West, Myth and Mending on the Far Side of America. And you also have a website at BetsyGainsQuammon.com. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you having me, Cam and Andy. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, And thank you for your work, too. Thank you. Andy, we'll be back next week. We will. See you later. See you then.
couldn't make it as a punker. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app.